Church, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And I just want to say something that I think makes sense. Well, I, I, hopefully, when I say things, they make sense. But, you know, when we sing these songs, one of the dangers is that they become familiar. And it's good to have the familiarity such that you can sing them without seeing the words. You can, you can sing them in your head as you're taking a shower or driving. That you can sing loudly when we are, are, are together. But there's always a danger in familiarity. We'll talk about that this morning in, in, in the text that we're looking at. But we're, we're, we try to be purposeful. I don't say we try to. We are purposeful in the songs that we pick to sing. We pick songs that have meaning. We have songs that have meaning for today. We, have, we pick songs that have meaning that is founded upon the Word of God, not songs that simply manipulate our feelings, not songs that simply appeal to our emotions, but songs that have something to say about the truth of what God has revealed to us that is pertinent for us today in our lives, in the life of our community, in the life of our church, and as what we're talking about in the Word. So when we sing these songs, as we sing the song we're going to sing at the end, don't let them pass over you and, and, and simply let the, the, the quality of the music or, or the, the harmony uh, that you hear uh, be what is most profound. Although those things are good, they are secondary to the truth of what is being proclaimed in these. And it is true one day we will feast together. This feast is actually, uh, that we'll partake of in a, in a moment, is the anticipation of that. But that is a feast in which there will be no weeping. There is no bittersweet. This is a bittersweet meal because it is a good meal, but it is a bittersweet meal. And so we'll get to that momentarily, but just as an encouragement to take advantage of the three, four, five songs we sing corporately on a Sunday morning. Allow them to minister to you not simply because they're melodious, but because they have been given to us by the Lord to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to encourage one another. Well, this morning we're in Mark chapter 6. And we, I mentioned familiarity, and here we have an issue of familiarity and how it went south for many. So Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to this man, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. And Jesus was saying to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his own relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was marveling at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, be glorified as we read your word. We pray as we study your word that your name will be magnified, be made great, great among us and great in our hearts and minds. We continue to Remember that you have given us your spirit. And one of his 
uh, blessings that he brings with him is an illumination of your word. So in six brief verses this morning, Lord, I pray that you will give us what we need for this morning and for this week and for our lives as we seek to honor you in all we do. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. So uh, we've had a few weeks off of the Gospel of Mark because we've been in um, a season of Advent. And although technically one can make the argument that until Epiphany, until next week, we are still in the season of Advent, um, we, we are returning to the Gospel of Mark and our verse-by-verse study of this text. And because we've taken a few weeks off, I want to kind of give you some broad strokes of how we've gotten here to chapter 6. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. But what do those contain? If we were to talk about some of the themes, some of the themes that we need to keep in mind are first and foremost that Christ is the Messiah and that he has come. This has been made evidently clear. Secondly, that, uh, that Christ is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And this is twofold. It, yes, it is about salvation, but it is also about him ushering in a new economy. How things are done is going to be completely different. This is encapsulated in phrases like the first being last and the last being first. Like it being a, something that is done by a farmer, but he goes to bed and it happens without him knowing about there being a new way of doing things. And thirdly, Christ's authority. Christ is Messiah, and so he has authority. He is the one who's ushering into the kingdom, so he has authority. And as we'll eventually get to in Mark, he is the king of this kingdom, and so that authority is due him. But he has authority over the demonic. And although that sometimes gets the press, that sometimes comes across as the most exciting thing, that is actually downplayed in comparison to the fact that he has authority over sickness, that he has authority over the natural world. And ultimately, the thing that offends people more often than anything else of Jesus is that he claims to have authority over us. They're not, they're not offended that he has authority over demons. They're not offended that he has authority over the waves or the wind or over bread, over fish. They're offended that he claims to have authority over us. And that authority comes through in his deft use his exposition of the Word of God. And that's kind of where we come to in chapter 6. So look at verses 1 and 2. It says, And Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. So Jesus did what Jesus did. He taught. Jesus' teaching is secondary to his work on the cross the main emphasis of the Gospels. Oh, what about the miracles? He walked on water, for goodness sake. I can teach, I can't walk on water. I can teach, but I can't multiply loaves and fishes. I can teach, but I can't make the lame walk, and I can't make the blind see. So what's so special about his teaching? Well, I think that's just it, and his, and his ministry bears this out. His miracles, remember, the Gospel of John and I'm not saying this to go too far afield from the Gospel of Mark, but the Gospel of John overtly uses the terminology signs to illustrate the purpose of his miracles. The purpose of his miracles was never to draw a crowd. The purpose of his miracles was never to shock people. 
The purpose of his miracles was always to authenticate his teaching. His teaching was the thing. His teaching was the goal. His teaching was the point. God was aligning people to his word by Christ's accurate representation of what the word of God said. And so it's, this is the, the oftentimes, and we've seen this in Mark already, this is the foundation for, the setting for, the context of his miracles. He is teaching something, and the miracle illustrates that. He is communicating something, and the miracle authenticates that. If this man says this thing, and then does this thing, then what he says must be true. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's teaching, and he's doing it in the synagogue. So once again, and as we'll see again moment, momentarily, he is aligning himself not with something new, not with something revolutionary. He is simply following in a long line of prophets, a long line of, at this point in time, rabbis who are in the business of communicating the things of God to the people of God, yet he's doing it rightly. He's not doing it for selfish gain. He's not doing it to shepherd the sheep in an uh, unholy and unrighteous manner, but he is that perfect shepherd that had been anticipated and promised in the Old Testament. And so we see that he does two things. And, and they, they, they talk about it. The people who are watching him talk about it at the end of verse 2. They were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to this man? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. So although his teaching, he's teaching, people are thinking about his teaching and his miracles. Jesus gives people wisdom, and he gives them divine manifestations of his power. Wisdom and miracles. And so the question is, who wouldn't be amazed? Who wouldn't be amazed? If you heard, if, I mean, if, if I really brought it this morning, amazement might not be the appropriate response. I'd be a little bit, you know, uncomfortable if you were amazed. But to say, huh, that's interesting. I'm not sure what the word for, huh, that's interesting is. But at bare minimum, if, if something amazing was brought forth, there's some, some wisdom that's communicated, then that would make sense. And if a miracle was, was performed, that would certainly bring forth amazement. Who wouldn't be amazed? What Jesus was doing, both through what he was speaking and through what he was doing through the miraculous things, was causing people to be amazed. But does amazement always lead to the appropriate response? Does amazement always lead to somebody saying, I know what you were intending by what you, by what you said or by what you did. And what's clear is that wasn't the case. Because look at verse chapter, or chapter, chapter 6, verse 3. The people say, go from saying, where did he get these things, this knowledge, this wisdom given to him, and such miracles? And they say, is this man not the carpenter, the son of Mary? and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they were taking offense at him. Church, there's a fine line between being amazed and being disgusted. There's a fine line between being amazed and being repulsed. And why is that? Well, I think we've all, we've, we've all experienced this in one way or another. Something that is lovely to someone is hideous to another. 
Take interior design, for example. At the risk of offending one, anyone, I won't use specific examples. But you've walked into, maybe it was your great grandma's house. And there was that room. We were just talking about this in our family a couple days ago. Because there's no rooms that are off limit in our house. But maybe your grandma or your great grandma had a room that was off limits. It was the one with the plastic on the sofa. It was the one with the curio cabinets with many a knickknack. Precious moments figurines, perhaps. And there was all sorts of things that were laid out, maybe even a bowl of candy, the kind of candy they give you when you become a grandma. You can't get it any other way. Bright colors, but they all taste a bit like soap. And there was that room, and it was amazing to her. She, she, she thought it was beautiful. And there was so much gold, and there were things were dangling, and everything was fuzzy except for the plastic-covered couch. And you look at that, and to her, it was marvelous. It was amazing. It was astonishing. And yet today, contemporary grandmas would say, absolutely not. We want things a little bit more Spartan. We like our pretty things, but we don't want that. We want people to enjoy it. So something that was so precious and beautiful to someone, to, to somebody else might say, that's the last way I would decorate. We could think about the same thing of clothing or hairstyles. That's one of the, 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 the very politically correct ways that people respond to some of the more colorful hairstyles and more uh, um, uh, creative ways to use people's faces as far as holding things. That might be nice for them, but it's not the way that I would do it. Something that is beautiful to one is odious to another. There's a fine line between being amazed and being disgusted. What makes the difference? Well, look at verse 4, and we kind of see what that is. It says, And Jesus was saying to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. There was a lot of familiarity in Nazareth. There's a lot of familiarity in Jesus' hometown. They knew who he was. And so for Jesus, the, the Jesus that they knew before his baptism, when his ministry formally began, the Jesus that they may have known as a teenager, and although perfect, although sinless, he was still a teenager, and he was still a child, to now have him standing up and telling them how things were, educating them, giving them what they needed because he had it, that was not amazing unto, I ought to listen to him. It was amazing to, who does he think he is? And we even see that being communicated here. It says that, where did this man get these things? Who, who is this man? The different translations actually render this differently to kind of communicate that, who is this? They know exactly who he is, but it's who does he think he is? The familiarity created a barrier. The familiarity created a buffer. The familiarity was effectively the stated reason for unbelief. Now, we know something about that heart of man. It wasn't that these people in Nazareth were just chomping at the bit to believe in God, to, 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 to understand who the Messiah was. It wasn't that they had right hearts 
but the fact that God decided in his sovereign providence to bring Jesus to Nazareth, that he basically messed up their opportunity to believe. That's not what happened. These people, as all people, were sinners who were enemies of God, who were rebels of, uh, against God. It just so happened that their particular reason for choosing to say they didn't believe had to do with the familiarity of knowing Jesus from a young age or even knowing Mary or knowing Joseph or knowing his siblings. It's not an excuse. Because you live next door to Jesus doesn't get you into heaven a little easier. And because you live next door to Jesus doesn't give you an excuse because you find it hard to believe who he is. The same thing could be said today. Just because you grow up in the church doesn't give you an automatic in to the kingdom. But similarly, giving, growing up in the, um, in, the, in the church doesn't mean that you get an excuse if you kind of don't like all the churchy stuff. That's one of the great uh, issues in our culture today. There's such great compassion and empathy being poured out on people who grew up in the church and who say, you know what, some people in the church did some things I didn't like, there's some things in the Bible I don't like, and I grew up in the church and I had to deal with it and I don't like it. And the prevailing notion, not only in culture, but many segments of Christianity, is to say, oh, that is too bad. That there are hard things in the Bible. Let's find some ways around that. Let's find some ways to make sure that you feel better. Now, this is not to say that we take the Bible and use it like a literal bludgeon, but this also doesn't mean that there is, there is an excuse for having a hard time wrestling with the deep things of God. Being the, the proximity and the familiarity, it doesn't get you in, but it also is an excuse if you don't believe. Does, do you understand what I'm saying, church? It's important that we acknowledge that these people, Jesus didn't say, oh man, we got to figure something out. Maybe we need another Messiah from another town so that they can believe in, the people from Nazareth can believe in him, and I'll go to that town because I'm from Nazareth and they won't have a problem with me. We'll just do a little exchange program. As silly and blasphemous as it sounds, it's the same kind of rationale that says, how do we create a Christianity that is a little bit more palatable to those who were burned by it 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or five years ago? It's important that we understand that God's word is true. It may be wielded improperly by man. It may be handled poorly by us. But we cannot compromise on the truth. There is no compromising on the person of Christ or his teaching or his miracles because of where he was, because of who he was with. He continued to be consistent in all settings and in all situations. But continuing on, looking through some other things that pop out here just to, to point out, one is very logistical, but I think it's worth mentioning. One, Jesus has siblings. They're named here, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. James is the James that we know who became a prominent leader of the New Testament church. Judas is, is also another name for Jude, which is uh, the uh, same name as Judah, actually. And it's the, the book in the New Testament with his name. And then we have a whole list of sisters. What does this tell you about Mary and Joseph? They had more than one child. What does this tell you about Mary? Well, it tells us straightforward that the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is a dogma held by the Catholic Church, is patently untrue based on Scripture. Why is this worth mentioning? Well, it's not what the sermon's about, but here we are, and the Scriptures give us rock-solid texts that refute something that a major movement that claims the name of Christ 
holds on to that Mary was perpetually a virgin? Well, here are the brothers of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and Jesus' sisters are right here in the text staring at us. There are hoops that certainly some Catholic apologists jump through. However, it seems very clear, the, the Greek is very clear, and even the English is perfectly clear, that these are Jesus' biological half-siblings. But that's the first thing that we see, and it's simply a point of, of, of note. But something else that we see here, the skepticism of people, the skepticism of the unbelieving Nazarites, these skeptical people they are creating a tension and they're creating some sort of um, problem that is actually greater than the demonic opposition that Jesus has been facing. Do you see that? When Jesus comes against the demonic opposition, he just says something and the demons turn and flee. The demons actually beg. Don't, don't send us out. Send, please send us to the pigs. You know, don't, don't, what are you going to do to me, son of man? Demons respond in that way when Jesus shows up on the scene, but the heart of man is different. And we don't have the, the time, the text doesn't even go in, into it too much. It's, it's more of a, a sense, more of a, of a theme that we get here going from uh, encountering the demonic uh, uh, opposition in Mark chapter 5 to the human opposition in Mark chapter 6. But something that is just really unique and maybe worth you thinking about and reading about in, in coming days and weeks is this idea that we see the unbelief of those who grew up around Jesus coming across as more problematic than the demonic opposition that Jesus faced. It illustrates something about the nature of mankind. It illustrates something about our hearts. It illustrates something about the long leash with which we have been given and our wills have been given the freedom of our will is not complete freedom, but outside of the, the new wills given to us by Christ, the freedom of our will is basically bondage to sin. The demons were on a shorter tether than the unregenerate men. The demons were snapped back into order quicker than those who didn't believe in Jesus. We certainly get that sense from what we just read in chapter 6. But something else that we see in these, these few verses is that Jesus identifies himself as in, in line with the prophets. We see that in verse 4. Jesus was saying to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. So this is a maxim. This is a saying. There's actually um, evidence that this is not something that Jesus came up with. But the idea that somebody pops up, they show up on the scene, and they seem to be giving you a word from God, if you know them and you knew what they were saying yesterday before God gave them a word, you grew up with them and they gave you all sorts of bad advice perhaps as a, as a kid and they did, said all sorts of silly things, then it was true that if you knew this prophet, you probably didn't have as much trust in him if you knew him his whole life than if he showed up on, on the scene you know, giving you message of repentance and you know, the end is near and things like that. And so although human prophets always had that fallibility, not in their message, mind you, not as they were communicating the divinely given word from God's spirit to God's people, but they, it doesn't mean they were infallible. Another dogma of the Catholic Church is papal infability. They really wish they would have that one back these days with their current pope, but that's neither here nor there. 
But this idea that everything that is said is infallible, that was not the standard that the prophets were held to. The prophets were held to that as it related to their prophecies, that when they say, thus saith the Lord, that had to be infallible. But where Jesus follows in their line but excels beyond that, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in Advent, how Christ is the perfect king and the perfect priest. He's also the perfect prophet in that he never had a time where he spoke perfectly and then kind of spoke off the record. Christ always spoke perfectly. He always spoke truthfully. But those who knew him, the familiarity, it it caused there to be a lack of, of, of faith. And in fact, the amazement, again, turned to disgust. The being impressed with the message and the miracles turned to being unimpressed with the one who is bringing the message and the miracles. Look in verse 5 and 6, because then we, get, we actually come to a, a tough saying of Scripture. It says, And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was marveling at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Verse 5 is a tricky verse. On its face, it says, And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. On a cursory reading, it may come across as Jesus was trying to heal people. He was doing his darndest, but they weren't singing loud enough, and so the sleigh couldn't fly. That Jesus really wanted to heal, but I can't remember the formula in Peter Pan. It had to do with somebody crying and the Tinkerbell, and I can't remember how that worked. I don't need to be corrected. But there was something going on there, too, where Tinkerbell had to have laughter. I can't remember what it was. Angels getting their wings. It's all blurring at this point in the season. But that's not what was happening. It was not that Jesus was really wished he could wield his sovereign hand here, that he's sustaining the universe and he could heal one more person if one more person would just believe. Well, what does it mean then? Because it says he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I think the trouble lies in the way that this is rendered. It's not that he couldn't do miracles. It was that he could do no miracle except those that he did. He did miracles. He healed people. He, he laid hands on the sick. What would be the doctrinal conclusion or the, 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 the doctrinal conclusion, the, the, the basis for the opposite. That Jesus needs faith to heal. Well, this would go against so much of what we've already encountered in Scripture. Remember, there, there, there's probably the most amazing example is that there's the, the ten lepers. Jesus heals them all. Only one had faith. Is that Jesus figures something out between this situation and that situation where he realizes, you know what, I don't need to have their faith to heal them. No. We even saw just a few weeks ago as we had the, the, um, the woman with the bleeding disorder and Jairus' daughter, the, the, the official, about how her faith was strong and his faith seemed to be a bit tenuous, yet Christ was able to heal. What we see over and over again in the Gospel of Mark and in all of the Gospels is that Jesus' primary reason for performing miracles was to demonstrate the effects of faith. 
Jesus' primary reason for performing miracles was to demonstrate the effects of faith. Remember, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it wasn't faith leads to miraculous things, and it isn't necessarily that a miraculous thing leads to someone having faith. He is communicating something about the nature of the kingdom of God, that miracles are the kind of things that accompany faith. And so if there was not a lot of faith, although he did miracles, he did lay hands and a few sick people and heal them, he, it wasn't in his, his MO, it wasn't in his plan. He wasn't in the business of going about and performing miracles simply to perform miracles. There was a strong tie and a strong tether to what Jesus did, to what he was communicating to people. I want to make sure that I'm very clear in, in, in stating this, church. It wasn't that Jesus was unable to perform miracles. It's that he was not in a situation where performing miracles would be beneficial to those who are around him. Something that bears out as we go through Mark throughout the Gospels is that the, being the recipients of miracles without faith was actually reason for greater condemnation. Do we see this as Jesus gets into the business of feeding people, as his crowd and his audience grows and grows and grows? As he feeds people, those who come simply to fill their bellies as opposed to their spirits, he speaks very harsh things against them because their motives are wrong. And so you could make the, ar ar the argument that Christ not doing miracles, restraining himself, restraining his miraculous works in Nazareth was a work of grace and mercy to those who were obstinately opposed to him because in performing a miracle, he would be giving them greater reasons to believe, yet with their hearts being unbelieving, it would be a greater condemnation for them to receive those miracles. Does this make sense, church? This is consistent with Christ. This is consistent with what he's doing. This is consistent with his ministry, his message, that he doesn't give things to people that they don't need, and he gives graciously even to those who are opposed to him. John Calvin in this passage wrote this. He said, For when the Lord perceives that his power is not accepted by us, he at length withdraws it, and yet we complain that we are deprived of his aid, which our unbelief rejects and drives far from us. It's a remarkable thing to think about. This happens to individuals. This happens to churches. You see it more and more these days where churches, for one reason or another, either for doctrine or for practice, drift away from the central truths of Scripture. And they say, kind of echoing what, uh, what we just read in our Bible reading plan in Malachi, we've been offering to you, We've been offering up these sacrifices to you. What's wrong? And what does God say? God says, your sacrifices stink. It's not in the King James. It's another translation. Your sacrifices stink to me. I don't want them in my nostrils because they're not being given from the right heart and they're not being given in the right way. And so it would be better if you didn't even do that because attempting to draw near to me is actually bringing greater condemnation upon yourself. And so as echoing what Calvin said, when he, we don't accept the good gifts of God, he will withdraw those gifts, and then we can't complain when we don't have those gifts. Certainly true for the unbeliever, but also, I would say, for us, 
when we neglect the good things that God has given us, and, and this is not meant to be an advertisement for the Bible reading plan, but when we neglect the, the, the blessing of God's revelation given to us, where many of us have countless copies physically in our home and every sort of translation we can imagine on the device in our pocket, when we neglect this and things are harder or we don't understand things or we struggle when somebody makes an argument against God's word, we are effectively removing the blessing from us. And so when we encounter difficulty, who are we to say, God, why is this so tricky? Why is this so hard? Why, why is it hard for me to develop a habit? Well, have you developed the habit? Have you, have you gone to God's word? Have you become engrossed in God's word? Have you fed on God's word? This is true for scripture. This is true for prayer. This is true for fellowship. This is true for disciplining our minds and our hearts and even our bodies to fall in line with what God has given us. And then we could even echo Christ's words in verse 6, and he was marveling at their unbelief. The wonderful truth of the incarnation is that Jesus has emotions. The wonderful, one of the wonderful truths of the incarnation is that Jesus makes observations that we would make. We marvel at the, 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 the unbelief of the, the people in Nazareth. Don't they know who's there? Don't they know who's teaching? This is, this is, you're not going to get it second. You're getting it firsthand. This is as good as it gets. We marvel at that. But how often do we see this today? People who hear the gospel over and over again. Do we marvel at this or do we say, well, it's their choice? Do we marvel at this and, and say, let me, let me rephrase it. Let me try this again. Let me explain it to you. Let me live this out a little bit better in front of you. Or do we say, well, I mean, I gave it the old college try. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. We ought to say, what we have is not one option. It is the option. What we have is not one thing. It is the thing. And if people don't want it, we ought to be surprised. And we ought to, we, we ought to not question, again, the concrete, unchanging, irrevocable promises of God. We ought to question ourselves. And this doesn't mean that we beat ourselves up if we flub a word or we don't give the perfect argument or we, don't have the, we, we, we give an hour as opposed to an hour and a half or two hours instead of two and a half hours. But we ought to have in our hearts that sense of marveling and unbelief. A wise man once said, and I can't remember who it was, but I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That takes a lot of faith. I marvel at that, that everything came from nothing, that everything is going back to nothing. I think I'm going to go with the something, the someone, and I marvel at that unbelief. In closed church, I'm going to point out a few things. Christ is not going to come into our midst and teach and perform miracles. When Christ returns, that's not what he's going to do. He's going to set everything right. He's going to do what we sang about before. We, we are going to have a great feast. The miraculous will be that everything has changed. That's what he's going to do when he returns. But God shows up not riding into town like Christ's apostles did in Nazareth, but God shows up in our life every day. Some days, 
It's in simple things. In the stillness, in the quiet, as we hold a child, as we, as we, we, we are stare in wonder at a sunset, as we have quiet, peaceful moments in his word, God shows up. Similarly, on the worst days, God shows up. God is not sovereign on some days in the calendar and not on other days of the calendar. It is not that God is in control when everything is smooth and that somehow Satan has a foothold when everything gets rocky. We need to remember today in anticipation of the tough days or looking back on the tough days that Christ has shown up every day. And no matter what his teaching is, no matter what he has given us, no matter what he has withheld from us, that we have an opportunity, like these people in Nazareth, to respond in one way or another. When we see God's providential hand moving, are we, do we embrace it or are we hardened by it? When we see God's providential hand moving, knowing that he ordained the end from the beginning, that he is doing all things for his glory and from our good, are we softened by those truths and those promises or are we hardened by our response to it? When, when difficult things arise in our life, do we accept an opportunity for faith in him or do we seek faith in ourselves, trying to go through the countless contingencies in our head, the, the, the innumerable what might have beens? Is that where we spend the majority of our time, or do we look at what God has given us, and particularly the opportunity for faith in Him? Every day, church gives us opportunities to be amazed by God or to be disgusted by God. Every day, every moment, every season of life allows us, like the people here in Nazareth, to be impressed by him, be, to, 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 to wonder at him or to be unimpressed and say, isn't this just? Isn't this only? To rationalize, to justify to, to minimize, to categorize, to, to try to fit into a box, into a spreadsheet, into a nice, tidy little flowchart. This is why these things are the way they are, and I'd prefer if they weren't. Church, on the best day or on the worst day, knowing that there's no day in which it cannot be said, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, but... Knowing on the best day and the worst day, the question you have to ask yourself is, does God astonish you because of his unyielding faithfulness? Or does he offend you? This is the most essential question for all of us. Any day, every day, does God astonish us or does God offend us? Does God astonish us because even in the most difficult time, he draws near to us 
He, he provides us exactly what we need, both because of his spirit's presence with our life, because of those he's given to us, and because of the great mercy of the presence of his son, his perfect life, and his atoning death? Or does he offend us? Because of the familiar, I know what I'm supposed to say when something bad happens and I'm a Christian. I'm sick of it. I know what I've been saying, but, but, but now things are a little bit different and so I don't like it. The job doesn't come through. The, the, the phone call comes. The diagnosis happens. The, 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 the life that you thought you were gonna, your child was going to have doesn't happen. All of those things, all of those circumstances give us an opportunity to either lean into what we believe and what we've been talking about and what we've been practicing and what, the one we've been worshiping for our lives or that gives us an opportunity to become so familiar with it that we just don't like it. This is not saying that you can't have a season of being upset. In fact, you, you, can't, you can't swing a dead cat in the Psalms without hitting David having a bad start to his day. But the resolution of those psalms is always him saying, but what can I do besides turn to you, God? I was offended. I'm sorry. Now I'm astonished by who you are, what you have done, and because of that, my confidence in what you will do. Where did this man get these things? He got these things because they belonged to him. The wisdom of the Old Testament is the wisdom of Christ. What is this wisdom given to this man? The wisdom given to Christ is a wisdom of a God who knows all, understands all, and in a way that is new based on what we are reading today from this point in history, the, 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 the hinge in history, Christ's incarnation, he also now knows the experience of you and I. He knows the experience of what it's like to be hungry. He knows the experience of what it's like to be sore. He knows the experience of what it's like to be enraptured beyond all, all comprehension because of something wonderful that's happened. And as I mentioned earlier, he knows what it's like to lose a loved one. Where did this man get this wisdom? It's because he is truly God, and it's because he's truly man. The incarnation ministers to us in this special way today, church. Christ knows what every day of your calendar is like. There is nothing you'll experience that is deeper than the grief that Christ experienced, and there's nothing that you will go through that is not momentous, more momentous than the glory and the joy that Christ experienced. But he was, remember, a man of sorrows. And he was bruised by our iniquities. So although he had good times, his life was more characterized by difficulty and by sorrow and by pain. Pain given to him by the Father on our account. We could continue to talk about this all morning, but we're going to put a stop on it here, church. My encouragement to you is to be impressed by Christ. Be astonished by Christ. Don't be in a situation where Christ marvels at you because you have been, for example, taking the supper week after week after week, year after year, your whole life, 
and how this has been for you a moment and an opportunity to anticipate the good things that you believe are going to happen, but then one day you take it and it doesn't have that same sort of punch. Allow Christ to minister to you at his table this morning and impress you, to astonish you, to, to, to show you in your heart and in your mind and even in the tangible elements of the bread and of the wine, the goodness and the richness that comes from the blessing of Christ. The hope that is in Christ, that we will feast, that he will wipe away tears, that he will give us all that we need. We are to be impressed as we come to this table. We are to glorify God as we come to this table. And I don't invite you, he invites you because it belongs to him. And he gives it to you with great liberality as a great, generous example of the grace that he has for us. And so uh, Netu and Joy are going to come up and, and play something. And as they do, uh, I will invite you to come and receive the elements and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. But will you pray with me before we do that? God, we are small. We are limited. We are fickle. We allow the familiarity of knowing you far too often to make what should be astonishing mundane. What should be impressive is just normal. So even if that's where we've been for the last hour, the last week or year, do something with your present spirit in us right now. So as we come to this table, that we will acknowledge that this is not just bread and wine, but this is your supper. A supper ordained by your son on the eve of his betrayal to represent his body and his blood, but also to give us an opportunity through his spirit, through faith, for him to be present with us as we partake in this, looking back, looking to the present, at how much we need him, but also looking to the future and the blessings, the 10,000 reasons and countless more beside that we ought to be thankful. Be with us, Lord, because we know that we can't do that without your spirit. We know he is here. We know your son is here by faith as we partake of the supper. We thank you for this. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.